0: I've had each one of my feet in a different genre, and I think that sisters also is true to that statement, that it's, you know, half a comedy, half a drama. Maybe I just get kind of bored living in one space all the time.
1: Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process. And make it accessible to everyone now let's jump in hey folks if you listen to my chat with jason this week you know that i covered the south by southwest film festival and was fortunate to talk to filmmaker jessica brunetto about her directorial debut at the festival her film sisters starring sarah burns and mary holland is the story of two estranged sisters who are forced to confront each other while preparing for their ailing mother's death in the process hidden secrets are revealed, creating tension and hilarity. Even though the film clocks in at less than 20 minutes, I was stunned by the high production value, how rich and developed the characters were, and how impactful and funny the story was, especially given the time constraints of the short film format. Before directing Sisters, Jess was an editor who cut her teeth editing documentaries with Michael Moore, including Capitalism, A Love Story, and Sicko. Working for Michael Moore, she learned how to weave comedy into more serious subject matter, helping Moore create his signature brand of gallows humor while telling big, culturally impactful stories. She went on to become a sought-after editor in television comedy, working on series like Comedy Central's Another Period, FX's Man-Seeking Woman, American Vandal on Netflix, Do You Want to See a Dead Body with Rob Hubel, one of my favorite shows on YouTube Red, by the way, Broad City, and Jordan Peele's The Last O.G. starring Tracy Morgan. In this episode, you'll hear how Jess broke into the film industry as an editor, how she was able to write and direct her first short, and how her background in editing trained her to pack a lot of story into a short film. She also talks about the logistics of making movies on a limited budget. According to Jess, she will soon be announcing on social media when and how sisters can be watched by the general public. So let's jump into my chat with editor, screenwriter, director, and producer, Jess Brunetto. Jess, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, Jess Brunetto, you are part of a storied and almost mythological film festival at this point. I mean, South by Southwest is considered to be the the go-to festival right up there with if not even more sought after than Sundance. How does it feel? to be part of this event?
0: Uh, I definitely think I'm still taking it all in every day. I might not even really fully comprehend what's happening till it's over, I think. But I will say it feels pretty amazing that for me in particular and my short sisters, I I truly feel like we found the right home for it for its premiere mm-hmm. and for it to find its audience and come out in the world. So, I think that is, you know, you can't replace that sort of thing. You know, I, I don't know. I, This is the place it should be. It's just notoriously South by Southwest, I think, has supported comedies and supported female filmmakers in ways I don't think I've seen other festivals do.
1: My only experience personally with film festivals is Sundance. And there's a tight-knit group of people that run it, and it's a certain vibe that you get in terms of the films that make it into the festivals. It does not seem to be comedy-centric. And South by Southwest, of course, has its own comedy festival element to it. But I'm noticing that with the films, there's just a lot more wiggle room in terms of the narratives that are at play. And yours really stood out to me as a very sweet drama slash comedy that was so nicely compressed, so economical. How did you approach the time constraints of the short film format when you had all of these comic legends here? You're talking about Sarah Burns and Rob Hubel and Mary Holland, and there's so much to work with. You have comedy gold basically. <laughs> you have all the ingredients for comedy gold and drama gold, but you have this limited time frame to accomplish so much. So, how did you approach that as a filmmaker?
0: I think first and foremost, it's worth mentioning that I, uh, you know, my day job is an editor and mainly in comedy TV these days. So, I think that, you know, what I do day in and day out is to tell the best story in usually the shortest amount of time. So I'm used to working within those parameters on a daily basis. And I think that it's really, it's also about as a writer or director, being in tune with the heart of the story and the vision of what is important to you. Um, I, think it's e- I think it's easy for people to, you know, kind of get off track with so many options and get overwhelmed by those things. Mm. But I'm, you know, I'm ruthless in the edit room. So
1: yeah. Was it harder to be ruthless with your own material?
0: Uh, I would say, yeah, that's definitely true. I brought on a longtime assistant of mine, Kate Itzquitz, to cut it for me. And she is a talented editor. She's ready to be in the hot seat always and forever. And, you know, she was someone who was a really good sounding board for me of what was working, what wasn't working. I really appreciated her input. And, you know, we didn't rush the edit. I think, I think as an editor, I've so many times seen filmmakers just be pressured by festival deadlines of like, we have to get it in here. We have to get the edit done by this day. And it never really works out to their advantage. Mm. So I wanted to lift away those kinds of restrictions and just let the process be as organic as possible. So we'd work on it, we'd show it to some people, we'd come back to the edit. I would say there were tons of things leaving set that I thought we were going to use performance wise that we didn't end up using those too. Uh So that was really eye-opening to me as well. Just revisiting that experience of like, sometimes what you think works the best on set is not always what is the best once you get into the edit room.
1: So you have Sarah Burns, Rob Hubel, Mary Holland, primarily Sarah and Mary. Mary. Throughout the film. Yes. And you're talking about UCB New York, and Sarah's filmography is amazing, and Mary's the same. How much did they contribute to the project in terms of improv versus staying on script? And what was that creative process like?
0: Um, well, I think that I felt very lucky. We had, you know, a half a day of rehearsal the day before principal photography with the two of them. I think that the film would not have been as good if we didn't have that time together without the cameras and the crew. And I think that every situation I just took case by case, like scenes that I felt could be more playful. Like a perfect example is um, when Sarah's having breakfast with her mother in the morning. Mm -hmm. That's entirely improvised. Okay. And that was a scene that I knew going in that, you know, of course you film the scripted lines, but I'm like, this really is a space where she has kind of these private meals, you know, with a person who can't really converse with her that I just kind of knew in my gut that Sarah would bring some interesting things to the table. And, you know, Mary too, I think that Mary is so focused on set. It's incredible to see. And she really combs the script. And uh, she really would ask me about lines a lot or ask, like, hey, do you care if I try this? Or do you care if we drop this line for this take? And, you know, I totally get it. And I want my sets to be flexible and fluid because I've learned again time and time again in the edit room that some of the best material is the stuff you don't plan for
1: you come from the comedy world as an editor and your resume is incredible working on shows like broad city and comedy specials aquafina is nora from queens also do you want to see a dead body with rob hubel so what called you to this story and this format of a short film with these people can you tell us about that process
0: uh yeah for sure it weirdly goes all the way back to one of my first jobs which was working for michael moore on sicko and i think one thing i really took away from working with michael is That the comedy really resonates with people over the message or any sort of facts you're trying to present to them. And I kind of left the documentary world to focus on narrative to sort of, I mean, I hate to say trick the audience, but like make a piece of entertainment where you can also confront serious subject matters underneath the surface.
1: That makes a lot of sense
0: so that's really how i decided at you know in my mid-20s how i wanted to shape the rest of my career and what i really was drawn to what i really wanted to focus on and you know this again going back to sicko this healthcare crisis has not ended in the united states um in my opinion yeah and it's you know Sadly, in the context of a pandemic, it's gotten even worse. And there are a lot of families struggling and suffering. And, you know, how do we how do we talk about this more publicly without it being, you know, this thing we hide from each other and we're all really ashamed of?
1: That's an interesting connection between the sicko documentary and also your work in comedy, which is so effective in reaching people's hearts it disarms them and it just lets them take in stories and ideas i think that they're not willing to listen to unless they're laughing and here you are taking this storyline of a dying mother and a torn relationship between sisters and using comedy to kind of reach people's hearts that way that's the way it worked with me it was so powerful It made me think this is ripe for a series or a feature. Are you thinking about that right now?
0: Um, I would say a, a little yes, a little no in terms of thinking about it. There was always a part of me that thought, if I'm going to take the time to write a short, I do want it to feel like it could be something bigger. And there is a post credit scene in Sisters, actually, that is a little taste of the future for these sisters. But I also think that that's a thing that will happen organically by showing it to people. So I'm kind of writing a few things right now, but in the back of my head, like I've always been thinking about the bigger version of what Sisters could be. But I think in a weird way, Jumping the gun on scripting it before showing it to people would be a mistake creatively. Mm. I think that sometimes, like projects, show you or tell you what they want to be if you really are in tune with the audience.
1: That makes sense. So let's go back in time. How did you make your way into not just editing, but editing for amazing shows and working with incredible talent? in Broad City and Colin Quinn and Jordan Peel, so many greats, and you're there in the editing room shaping their projects. And I did not really think about the importance of editing, frankly, until I watched a movie called Zeroville. I don't know if you saw that with James Franco.
0: I've not. I've I've heard some things. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's a very it's a very interesting film. And it's almost experimental in a way. But it really highlights the importance of the editor in the process and how sought-after editors can be. And I know it's a fictional film, but it really does reveal how important they are to the process. And so, how did you make your way into this space and to become so successful as an editor?
0: Uh, I think looking back, I mean, it's an interesting evolution because, you know, I think of myself as a kid and I'm like, oh, it was always there. It was... You know, I think I'm maybe one of the last generations that wasn't totally immersed in film and video in like high school and middle school years. And so for me in high school, all I really had were my creative writing classes and my art classes. And I found myself like gravitating towards those two things. And in my art classes specifically, I started to. Focus in collaging, Mm. which is so very similar to editing.
1: Yeah, no kidding.
0: Yeah. So I started to realize, like, you know, mixing up things that don't necessarily go together can create a new sort of meaning as in a piece of art. And so I literally took uh, the best guess of my whole life applying for film school. I just had never made a movie. I really just took a guess that that's what I should be doing with my life. Wow. And I also got very lucky. I applied to SUNY Purchase, and the program only accepts 20 kids a year. So that was something I went through a very long interview process. Uh, They bring you in, you have to write a like, watch a clip of a movie, and then you're You have an hour to write the next few scenes of what you think is going to happen, as well as just having an in-person conversation with one of the professors and a student. So that was really, you know, I think that just came from a place of being in tune with myself. So that was like a really good place for me to kind of figure out where I wanted to at least start my career. So at the time, I actually was a little more curious and interested in documentary filmmaking. I, I really enjoyed the discovery process in the edit room and the fact that there was a little more writing involved in the edit room, those sorts of things. Uh, so that was my main focus while I was there. Although I, you know, look, I also tried to break a lot of rules. I was a documentary student. And then my senior year, I made a narrative film. So <laughs> I just <laughs> have always, you know, tried to, uh, I guess, make my own rules as a filmmaker. Good for you. And funny enough, that was, I, I've always felt like I've had, you know, each one of my feet in a different genre and i think that like sisters also is true to that statement that it's you know half a comedy half a drama maybe i just get kind of bored living in one space all the time
1: mhm
0: uh tonally
1: yeah so when you graduated from film school how did you make your way into the industry how did you get your foot in the door
0: uh, i i begged some professors for a couple contacts Just to help me get started, PAing, I started as uh, a logger, as they call it in reality TV, where you're really just watching tapes and transcribing them. I also had a little stint at New York Film Academy, where I would teach high schoolers how to make films at summer camps. So I lived on the Princeton University campus for a couple summers doing that, and then when I was working. Uh, as an assistant editor at MTV, one of our editors had worked for Michael Moore on *Bowling for Columbine*, mm. and he uh, he became the main person I just would chat with at lunch and would talk to him about how much I wanted to work in documentary films. And you know, he would tell me cool stories, like *Bowling for Columbine* was shaped following the plot structure of the wizard of oz (laughs) um which i thought like just kind of blew my mind that documentaries (laughs) would be following the same story and plot structure as feature films Mm. and i think that that in a weird way as a documentary editor i started studying screenwriting a lot more on my own just like consuming different books and analyzing and breaking apart uh, different beats in movies in narrative films to help apply that to the edit room when you're just kind of on a documentary it's like here's a pile of footage make a movie <laughs> and you're you kind of have to know yeah a little bit about crafting you know acts and dramatic turns and kind of sensing tonally what should be happening at which points in, in a feature film, even if it's a documentary.
1: As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. Hey, it's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode Featured artists and resources to help you on your journey. Now back to the interview. You know, that's interesting that you bring up the documentary footage dump at the end of the shoot because I would think that the decision making process of how to put that into a story would be impossibly difficult, especially if you do not know about story. So if you're studying story and you're studying cinema and you know, I think your film school experience probably helped you immensely with that, but you're able to, as an editor, make those tough decisions and they're not just random decisions. They're based upon story structure and plot. What an incredible training you had as an editor to be able to jump into directing and producing, to have that experience of just knowing what works because you are looking at it at a granular level. And you're doing it with a lot of material, trying to make these tough choices. I would think that your reputation, even though you're a first-time filmmaker, your reputation with these comedy royalty actors must have been boosted by the fact that you have all of this editing experience.
0: I I think that's definitely true. And um, you know, funny enough, both Rob Hubel and I worked for Michael Moore earlier in our careers.
1: Oh, I didn't know that about Rob.
0: Yeah, at different times on different projects, but um, I think we connected in that way. And there's a lot of similarities between documentary filmmaking and comedy improv, right? Both, like from a directing and editorial standpoint, right? And that that actually helped me move from documentary to narrative. Uh, John Glazer kind of gave me my first chance as a comedy editor, scripted comedy editor, because his show Delocated was a fake reality show and they improvised a ton. So they were kind of looking for documentary editors, not scripted editors to help put that show together. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I've always really uh, cared about how especially my my female protagonists uh, look and appear on screen. I think that that's something I, I would say to Mary and Sarah so many times of like, you know, it's really important to me, you guys look good on screen because, you know, I want to protect them in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that maybe uh gave them a little more trust in what the finished product would be right even though they were taking a chance on me as well
1: yeah you've got that editor's eye and that female perspective of making sure that the subjects of the film are not exploited or portrayed in a way that is going to be maybe sensational for the filmmaker and the audience but not so great for the actors
0: absolutely i mean you know, so much of directing is building a connection with your actors and, you know, they do very vulnerable things in front of the camera and you have to make them, you know, just feel, just feel comfortable with exposing that part of themselves. And, you know, I really also as a director, I'm very fascinated with putting traditional comedians in more serious roles. So I think that that, is another thing that I'd like to believe my resume speaks to, is a wide range of emotions that I think we were able to achieve on Sisters. I mean, it's it's a hard balance, but it can be done.
1: I think you're right. You definitely achieved that balance in this short. And I'm still struck by how much you packed into such a short film and and how powerful it was. And also, Visually, talk about production value. This looks like a feature film from a major studio. How did you pull that off in terms of cinematography, lenses, and cameras? As an editor and also in your experience in film school, I would guess that that was not the focus of your training. So, how did you approach that as a filmmaker?
0: Well, thank you. That's a insanely high compliment that I will be happy to take that you think it looks like a studio movie.
1: It does. <laughs> It really does.
0: (laughs) But, you know, I have a visual eye, you know, going back to what I said about my high school experience, just, you know, trying to thrive in my fine arts classes. And, you know, for me, I get disappointed when I see comedies kind of cut those corners and not totally care about the visual aesthetic of a movie. Uh, Not to like diss on anyone, but it's kind of true. A lot of them are notoriously lit really flat and, um, you know, just no real vision, right. As a director, it kind of, yeah, I don't know. It just feels flat to me. That's all I can say about it. And, uh, I agree. Yeah. I, I just knew that I had a stronger voice inside of me and that I wanted to put that at the forefront of this project, but it's interesting. Like we, shot on two Blackmagic 4K cameras that we were literally, it was the first month or two when they came out, they were really hard to get a hold of. We were refreshing the Adorama and b site every day to try to get our hands on these cameras. And the reason we gravitated towards them is because the house was very small. So we needed... um you know, cameras that we can move around with quickly. Mm-hmm. I did want to cross shoot some scenes with Sarah and Mary uh, so I could roll on them in the, at the same time to really have their performances click. And again, give them that flexibility on set to play with each other. But my DP, Wes Cardino, also, he we went to SUNY Purchase together. He went on to AFI to get his master's and he has a great eye. And he definitely brought to the table some, uh, like, kind of hooked us up with some Zeiss Prime lenses. So you have these like 35 millimeter lenses on these smaller cameras just to make kind of push the image to the best quality it could be. Mm. And all those things coupled with amazing production and costume design. Cause I knew, I knew we couldn't make it look. Say more expensive by doing amazing camera moves because of the space. And quite frankly, I don't think the story really called for that. Um, You know, it's not like we could get dollies in any of these spaces or have the money to kind of do those things. So, you know, we put our efforts in the production and costume design and we utilized triadic color blocking so we assigned each of the women a specific primary color um sarah was all blues mary was all reds and the mother was all yellows Um, so kind of having those things pop on screen was a part of the way Mm -hmm. we made the film look a little more it gave it a higher production value overall
1: I agree, and it's one of those things that as a a non-filmmaker, you don't notice specifically when you're watching it, because I'm not in that world, but I read interviews with you about that aspect of the film after I watched it, and I was like, oh yes, the reds, the yellows, and those choices that you're making, you can go back and then it all starts to make sense. There's a lot of decisions that you are making as a director. And working with these people who are also trying to help you make these decisions about color and about the set itself and what do you have on the wall you know what paintings do you have on the wall what pictures do you have there and they all tell a story it's all part of the story and it's incredible that you have pulled this off as a first-time filmmaker with all of these great actors so what is next for you if you know or can you even say if you're working on another film related project?
0: Um, I don't totally know what's next for me. I think that my approach has always been to, you know plant a lot of seeds and see what grows kind of attitude. In my film independent film life, I'm working on three different scripts, honestly, with my producing partner and life partner, Christian Baker so we have been writing together for years and um i will say one thing about sisters is i did miss having a writing partner it can be a lonely road sometimes so Mm. (laughs) (laughs) uh and especially when you're making comedy it really helps to have someone like bounce the jokes off each other and the premise and all those things so we've kind of teamed up again and I think all of our projects we're working on are in a similar tone to sisters where it's, you know, a dramedy for lack of a better word, you know, but it's, it's hard to know where the future of indie film is right now with the pandemic Mm -hmm. and what is actually executable or realistic. Um, so I'm just trying to be patient and use this time to really hone ideas.
1: I think you picked the right genre for a pandemic. You've got two actors, it's a fairly contained space, you don't have a lot of locations. Perfect genre.
0: You know what? That was total luck cuz we actually shot it before the pandemic. So <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but but maybe it's perfect for to continue it into something bigger right now. Right. Because you know, I don't think the testing on set is going to end anytime soon even with the vaccine. Mhm. And, you know, that can put a, a really big strain on a production that already doesn't have full funding, for, for example. Right. Oh, I did, I did want to say too, in my, in my TV life, though, I am, you know, trying to push to get an episode of television to direct. Uh, before the pandemic, I was lucky to shadow some director friends on various TV shows. So I'm really trying to get comfortable with that uh, scale of directing and production as well.
1: Oh, that's awesome. There's so many directors that straddle those worlds of film and television. And I think television is a great place to be for steady work. And then it gives you that flexibility to kind of venture out into indie film and not lose your shirt and and be homeless in the (laughs) the process.
0: (laughs) That is correct. That's exactly what I'm going for, honestly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, one last question about funding. What are the logistics for aspiring filmmakers who want to start with a short in terms of funding a project? Is it all on your credit card? Is it all just personally funded? Or is there a way to get investors interested in a short? Because shorts, I would imagine, are not big revenue generators. They're more calling cards for future projects. But How logistically did you fund this project and how is it done generally?
0: I can only speak to my own experience, of course. Uh, we I would love to say this project was funded by someone else, but it was kind of 90 to 80% funded by myself uh, and my husband, producing partner, Christian. We did work as many favors as we possibly could. Because, you know, the house we shot in is an editor friend's house. I worked with on American Vandal, the, you know, just favors from a composer I've known for 15 years. He did all the music, you know, just for free, if I'm being honest. And we got a lot of favors like that, as many as possible to, not have this balloon into something that, like you say, we would lose our shirt on for just a little 16 minute film. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to believe, look, I've done so many favors for people on on their projects that I'd like to believe it's a two-way street. And if those people need to come to me at any point for favors on their stuff, I'm here for them. I want to support them. And oh, I will say Caviar uh, was generous enough to help us with our production insurance. Mm. And that kind of came about uh, with our executive producer, Yorma Takone, connecting us with Michael Sagel over there. And I will say this is something that Ava DuVernay says, which is just ask. And so we were just going around asking production companies if they would help us with production insurance or if we could use their insurance sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a lot of creative ways from a budget standpoint that you can work favors. I think the more of that you can pull off will have a little less pressure on yourself also because i think that if you're if you are overextending yourself financially i think the work is going to suffer so i think that's something to keep in mind for for future filmmakers or other filmmakers
1: so really it's so important to have a community of people in a network that trust you that you're friends with otherwise it's completely on you financially to fund it as opposed to getting help from friends who are already in that specific industry or have a house that they're willing to allow you to use for set location.
0: Yeah. I mean, it it definitely, it takes a village to even make a small project. And I think it's also about being realistic about what you write. You know, that in itself, I think kind of took me years to hone. Mm Mm-hmm of like making sure you're writing things that are executable, because we're not all gonna get the big paycheck from a studio to make things, and you have to kind of believe in yourself and make it happen for yourself.
1: Do you have plans, Jess, to take this to other film festivals throughout the remainder of 2021?
0: Absolutely. We uh, we've already been accepted to Denver women in film festival through the Denver film commission that's happening next month. And we have a lot of, uh, we're kind of playing the waiting game with a lot of other festivals. We've had some invites to apply places and then places I've just applied to. So I think it's just going to be an evolution and, um, You know it's okay there's no rush yeah there is no rush
1: well it's a really special project jess and i want to thank you for sharing your story with us what an incredible journey you've been on from that first collage that inspired that application to film school and then into the editing room and now as a director and producer of this wonderful short called sisters is there going to be a way to see this film for my listeners to see this film in 2021 on some type of a platform.
0: There will be, I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about it yet, though. Okay. I would say I am putting a lot of information about the film on my Instagram mainly, which is just Jessica Brunetto, or you can go, you can follow the film on Instagram, which is just Sisters underscore short film. That's another way we'll be announcing where the film is playing.
1: Okay. That's one struggle I found as a podcaster and also a a lover of film is that shorts are very difficult to find. They don't have a home sometimes. So it'd be nice to see your film land somewhere where it can get seen by a lot of people.
0: Uh, Yeah, we do have a... We already have a very unexpected, exciting place that people are going to be able to see it for free. So I just don't think it's public yet. So I'm sorry. I can't share it with you today.
1: Oh, yeah, that's fine. So once I find out about that, I will put it in the show notes. I'll update your show notes on the website, and I'll give you a shout out on the podcast as well.
0: That sounds great.
1: Yeah. So in terms of your website, it's uh, jessbrunetto.com, right? Correct. And your Instagram is Jessica Brunetto. Yep. All right. Thanks for sharing your journey with us.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Brian. This was a lovely conversation.
1: Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favorite ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.